I am Natalie Pearson, a Curriculum Coordinator at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. And today I'm joined on Zoom by Dr. Yao Tong Chia. And Yao Tong is a Senior Lecturer in History Curriculum Education at the University of Sydney, where he teaches History Curriculum Units in the Combined Degree and the Master of Teaching Programs. And Yao Tong is also the Country Coordinator for Singapore with the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. So Yao Tong, welcome. Oh, thank you, Natalie. Today, we're going to be talking about your work on the history of education in the context of Singapore. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the history of teaching history in Singapore. So I'd like to start by asking you what history education can tell us about a nation in a general sense. Is it just about teaching students what happened or does the teaching of history within a national curriculum tell us something about what a nation is actually trying to achieve? History, in some sense, is about what happened. But from the historian's perspective, it's not just what happened, it's the interpretation of what happened. But then when you look at history education and when the state is involved, that's when it becomes more of a nation-building project because the states use history education as a tool and the literature is consistent on that. The teaching of history, the curriculum of teaching history for the purposes of shaping and molding a nation, it is consistent in most, if not all countries of the world. Australia included. Let's turn to the Singapore context then. Why is Singapore such an apt case study to think about education and the teaching of history within a national curriculum? One thing, I think the smallness of Singapore helps. Often when people say Singapore is small, an outlier, it's not the mainstream, a lot of uh, critics will say that and then why do you look at the bigger countries like the United States of America or like China, the big countries, right? But Singapore being small has its advantages. Academically, I like the concept of center periphery by Edward Shields. This idea of uh, Singapore being smallness is seen like they're not at the center and the periphery. But if you look at it, a lot of the interesting concepts that we know come from the so-called peripheries. I cite two really good examples on that. One of them is Benedict Anderson on nationalism and works by James Scott on the role of the states. You notice that they started their careers in so-called peripheries. Because when you look at the big places, you have assumptions that you take for granted. And a small place like Singapore can challenge a lot of assumptions that we take for granted. That's why I think Singapore is a really good case study. And does Singapore's particularly unique history also make it an apt case study as well? It has had quite an interesting history. Perhaps you could briefly sketch that for us. The received notion of Singapore history is that it's very short, it's only about 200 years, if you see from the perspective of colonization, because the British colonized Singapore from 1819 to about 1963. During the Second World War, Singapore was occupied by the Japanese, joined Malaysia in 1963, and then left in 1965 to become an independent state. Now, the question about that also is the question of the pre-colonization. The history of that is actually quite, um, we know not a lot, but the last several years, I think there's been a lot more research about that because a lot of the records are quite sketchy. And so that part of history for a long time, I think wasn't emphasized. And the emphasis for a long time has been the British period and the decolonization. So that's in a nutshell, the overview of the periodization of Singapore's history. So you write in your book, Education, Culture and the Singapore Development State, 
that for Singapore, history could be a strong disintegrative force as it had an immigrant multi-ethnic population, each with their own pasts and attached to their yep. own places of origins. Can you make the connection between that very multi-ethnic past and the decision to uh, locate Singapore's origin, I suppose, with uh, Sir Stamford Raffles? That's the post-independence dilemma of the Singapore government, that the teaching of history isn't seen as some unifying factor. The reason is also the recent history of the racial riots that took place. In 1964, uh, it's seen that if you look at the histories of different ethnicities, these histories are not tied back to the place, the location of Singapore, but rather Chinese is to China, to Indians to India, the Malays to the idea of Malaysia. It would kind of threaten the existence of Singapore as a separate nation state, which is why the idea of history of multi-ethnic history is not seen as something that would unite, but that would divide. Of course, saying that there's also this idea of having a local Chinese history, local Indian history, that is somehow not really in the discussion I see in my research. It's interesting that the British was seen as neutral. If you look at, for example, Indian history, the way history is being taught in India, the British is not seen as neutral. And in many countries that decolonize, right, in Africa too, the idea that the Dutch in Indonesia is seen as very good or the idea that the French was really amazing in Vietnam, that is kind of anomaly. And that is, uh, to me, is the most interesting part about Singapore's history education. So the colonial period was almost something that was a galvanizing force in the way that Singapore understood its past. But I understand that that changed over time, that the period immediately after World War II and then the period after independence. So it was quite a change in the way history was understood in Singapore and in how it was um, integrated into the national curriculum. Can you tell us about the change in the teaching of history in Singapore over that period? There was attempts during the decolonization period to what is known as to Malayanize the curriculum. And I have to give some context about that. The whole idea of Singapore's decolonization initially wasn't to be an independent state on its own, but to join Malaya, which later became Malaysia. That was the whole goal. Therefore, the whole idea is to indigenize the curriculum, localize the curriculum, and therefore Malayanizing the curriculum and history being that. So more emphasis on Malaysian history, on Malayan history. But still, with that, the British was not seen that negative to even in that kind of a change in this curriculum. And then the post-independence was the period where the British was seen as a neutral thing, not galvanizing force, more like neutral. And the reason is not only ethnic, it's also economic. Because of Singapore's economic strategy of inviting foreign multinational corporations to invest in Singapore. That was the decision the government took. And it was against the norm at the time. The period in the 1960s was a major economic theory that held sway was the dependency theory. And what happened was that the notion of local industries nationalizing the industries took place, I think, in much of decolonized Africa and Asia. So the notion of getting foreign companies to come in at that period, they seemed almost like a kind of a cop-out, right? Instead of nationalizing your own economy, you are getting other people to come in. And that was against the grain. But in hindsight, this notion worked for Singapore. And Singapore also went against the grain in terms of looking to the future rather than looking to the past in its search for meaning and as part of its nation building project. Yes, that's yeah. also another one. 
that instead of trying to craft a national history in earnest, Singapore went instead looking at the future, what Singapore would be. That's where you see the idea of civics education looking as a future orientation. And to make a caveat here is they did try a little bit to do something for the teaching of history in primary schools, but it was a very short-lived attempt and then it was aborted. So those first couple of decades post-independence, Singapore was not embracing the teaching of history in its curriculum, but this changed in 1984 when they introduced a new syllabus, a new history syllabus. So what prompted this shift in how history was taught and, and what was the new syllabus trying to achieve? 1984 was a, really a turning point in that since then, the history of Singapore is being taught in schools hmm. in a very big way. There's a few reasons. One, I think would be, some would argue that the loss of the PAP's complete monopoly of parliament was perhaps one factor. The People's Action Party, Singapore's ruling party since 1959, had a total monopoly of uh, parliamentary seats from 1968 to 1981. In 1981, in the by-election, one opposition MP candidate won. And I think that was one of the galvanizing reasons behind this idea that the Singaporeans was taking the Singapore success and prosperity for granted. This kind of narratives came in. So I think political reasons was a key factor, uh, more than the economic or the social factors. So it's not education per se, I think. However, the aims of it was not a political history. It was a social and economic history, a depoliticized history. Sure, but this idea of a depoliticized history is obviously not possible if the purpose of that depoliticized history is political. Absolutely, right? The whole depoliticization process, if it's driven by the state, is inherently political. I'd like to talk now about this crisis mindset that you mentioned earlier and this theme that we see in Singapore of overcoming adversity through tenacity and innovation. One of these yep. crises, um, whether they're real or imagined or engineered, relates to what you call historical amnesia. So what was Singapore forgetting and how did they address it? Amnesia, from a perspective of state, the supposed historical amnesia, is the intertwining of Singapore's decolonization with that of the story of the People's Action Party, and that is very hard to separate. And so the forgetting is the forgetting that Singapore could have gone another way, Singapore could have collapsed. It's almost uh, Singapore's existential crisis. The whole notion of Singapore is very fragile, Singapore is very vulnerable, both in terms of its location, it's a small country, it's surrounded by countries that may not be so friendly, uh, there's an external environment isn't favorable to Singapore. The internal environment, Singapore is also fraught with ethnic cleavages that could spill over again. So this notion that beneath the surface lurks a lot of uh, dangers. This is the kind of narrative that's always been put forward. So this forgetting of that Singapore is vulnerable. By 1990s, Singapore was like the very successful East Asian economic tigers and this kind of notions, right? And younger generation growing up in prosperity would take all this for granted forgetting that Singapore is vulnerable. Yeah, I think this idea that there was a, a concern that young Singaporeans might take peace and prosperity for granted and fail to commit to ideals such as meritocracy and multiracialism is really interesting. 
And I understand that a major policy initiative was introduced in 1997 called the National Education Program as part of an effort to introduce a comprehensive citizenship education framework. So what was the significance of this National Education Program? That is the core of my book, actually, the National Education Program. And this is beyond just the schools, but from the school context, it became the key framework to frame all of education for citizenship in Singapore. And it's very much tied in with Singapore's national identity. The scripting of Singapore's history, or some call it the narrative template. This is the script of Singapore's history. And it's known as the Singapore story. And Singapore story is about the nation overcoming trials, overcoming crisis in the 1960s, and how Singapore became what it is today. And I think this national education to me is important because the script is now complete. 1984 is the first version of that articulation. And then 1997 national education, you see that this is the culmination of the scripting of Singapore's national history from the state perspective. So what's happened since 1997? Is the national education program still being taught in schools or, and in Singapore more broadly? Since 2011, there's a new major citizenship education program called the Character and Citizenship Education. National education is still there, but it's now subsumed under this framework. So there was a reconceptualization of that. Mm. So these ideas, notions of identity and values of meritocracy and multiracialism, they remain current, albeit in different iterations since 1984. You've sketched a really clear history of citizenship education in Singapore for us. What can it tell us about contemporary political culture in Singapore? I think we have to be clear that we can't ascribe causality. But what I can say that kind of mirrors that in terms of the 2015 general elections in Singapore, the voters appear to be quite conservative in, in terms of voting patterns. And that mirrors the citizenship education that's being taught in schools. I can't say that it's the causality factors, but the interesting link is that. So there are other factors besides education, besides schooling, but I say that it's part of the contributing factor of the way Singapore's voters are more into um, economic issues rather than looking at uh, issues of social justice and inequity. We've talked a lot about Singapore, but to wrap up, I'd just like to ask you one final question about the implications for the Singapore case study for other nations in terms of how history is taught? I think it's uh, beyond just how history is taught. History education of Singapore is very much tied in with a certain sense of national identity, using history as a means for uh, national identity formation. Another one is also this indirecting about citizenship education's role for political legitimacy. I'll draw your attention to a recent special issue looking at the Singapore model in China Quarterly. That's an unwritten story about Singapore's role in Chinese economic development. Partly it's also uh, because the role of Singapore's founding prime minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, and also his relationship with China, with uh, Deng Xiaoping, and then successive Chinese leaders sought his advice. Deng Xiaoping saw Singapore as a kind of a model. He actually was very explicit. You can see it in 1992 when he went to Shenzhen. He said about wanting to learn from Singapore and to surpass Singapore. So Singapore had a lot of inputs in China's early economic development, especially in the early years of modernizations. Mm. And fascinating that those ideas are still resonating decades later in China. Yes, yes. Yeah.
we started off by talking about how Singapore is a great case study because it's small, it's discreet. So it will be very interesting to see how these ideas around governance and education transfer to China, which is, of course, you know, much larger and quite different in many respects. Ya Tong, thank you so much for spending some time with SIAC today to talk about your really interesting research. And thank you once again for joining us. Thank you so much, Natalie. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. For more podcasts like this, look up Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at soundcloud.com.